Well, it's not perfectly dark, but could you imagine living in darkness all your life? And what would it look like to have to walk around through this? Now, if we left this long enough, our eyes would start to adjust, and I would actually begin to be able to recognize some of your faces. Some of us might even be able to begin to read the larger print in our Bibles, given enough time. But what if you did allow your eyes to adjust to this, and then Frank back there threw the light switch on full blast? Ooh, that hurt me. Right? What if you've been to a movie theater, you've watched a movie before, and it's all dark and your eyes get used to it, and if you've gone to a matinee and you walk out, it is affronting, it is assaulting <laughs> the light, especially when you go out onto the white pavement. You know, why do they always make everything white cement around the theaters? You come in, you're like, Lord, the Shekinah. I did not know you were coming while I was at the movie theater. It's a dangerous thing when the Christian gets accustomed to the darkness. When our eyes grow accustomed to the darkness around us. Because then the light of the glory of God becomes too offensive to us. And it's the same with the worldling. How many years were you walking without Christ before you came to him? And what if it was thrown all of his glory in your face at once? It would be impossible to receive, wouldn't it? You would have to shield your eyes. You would have to turn away. And some of us have seen the gospel presented in a way that is affronting and offensive. Just full on punch in the face. Now, some people need that to wake them up. But for most of us, that's quite a shock to our systems. And what we need is for our eyes to adjust to the light of the gospel and the promises it makes so that as he comes, we are not shielding or hiding from the intensity of his glory, but we are actually living lives right now which preview the glory to come so that the people around us and in the world will begin to see, taste, and anticipate that which is to come. We do not want a world that's accustomed to the dark. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that we were rescued from the domain of darkness and have become inheritors of the light. This is the biblical vision, that we were in darkness, but then we're put in the light. But unless we adjust, you and I too, unless we adjust to the light of what God's promises hold, we will remain accustomed to the dark. Our eyes have to go through an adjustment process. So, we want to look at this and see what Isaiah has to say here. Um, By the way, and what we're about to read is very glorious and hard to comprehend, But I wonder if the glory we're about to see in this book, if it appears absurd because we are absurd. So when I, when I read the Psalms and I read the Bible and I read about everything that the king's gonna do, he's gonna come and he's gonna flip everything upside down, right? 
The persecuted will be liberated, the poor will be fed, and the rich and mighty and powerful will be brought low, and there will be this whole cleansing, and the creation as it is will not be as we see, and there will just be this entire change, this glorious presence will come, and things will be flipped around. I read that, and sometimes you can be, you can, if you're honest with yourself, you have at times thought, that's almost too absurd to be true. Like, that, that just can't happen. I look at the world and nothing's ever changing. But I had this moment when I realized, sometimes I wonder, can God really reverse everything? Is everything really going to be as good as he says it is? I wonder because I found that I have not adjusted my eyes to the light of that glory. I don't live with a vision for what he's bringing and I get stuck in a custom, getting my eyes accustomed to the darkness around me that when I think of what God's bringing in the future, I think that's absurd. That's, that's, that's hyperbole to make a point that things will just get a little bit better. See, I'm the one who's absurd. God's promises are not absurd. They're the way everything's supposed to be. His miracles were not like, oh, that's weird. He changed the laws of nature. It's absurd. His miracles that he did to people who were blind and now can see, who were lame but now can walk, who were deaf but now can hear, those things, that movement is natural in God's world. He is the healing and restoring God. But when we look at those things and say, that's bizarre, that's absurd, it's because we're living lives that are stuck in the darkness and we see the light as a bizarre and absurd. Does that make sense? It's, it's me who does not grasp the glory to come. It is not at all possible for the promises of Scripture to come true. I need my eyes to be adjusted. I need to adjust my eyes to the glory that will rise. So, I say all that because we're about to read the glory that will rise in chapter 60. Chapters 61 and 62 are the prophet Isaiah's commentary upon this glory that will rise. And he wants to accustom our eyes to that coming glory. So chapter 60 and 61 and 62 will show us how to adjust our eyes. So, but first, we gotta see the glory to come because it is magnificent. So magnificent that you may recognize elements of this in very popular portions of scripture. All right, Isaiah chapter 60. Let's go. Verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Now, that word glory Sometimes we throw, oh, it was glorious. We throw that word around and it kind of cheapens it sometimes. You might remember in Ezekiel, we looked at how the glory of God was his weighty, substantial presence that brought everything, a density, a reality that made everything else look like a shadow in its midst. That's one aspect of his glory. A much simpler aspect of his glory is simply that which is beautiful and radiant When the glory comes, all things are affected by this beauty, and they become beautiful as well. They transform from dark to light, from ashes to beauty in the midst of this glory. We are seeing this element of the glory, the dazzling, spectacular, beautiful, eye-grabbing glory. You You might remember that in Ezekiel. Glory can really be described as that which turns your head. Whoa, what was that? That is what our hearts find glorious. And if we can have our heads turned toward the creation, just wait till the glory rises upon us. 
all heads will be turned. All creation's heads will be turned. Now, verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But Yahweh will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Everybody on earth is going to notice what happens when God's glory rises. It's as if it is imaged as the sun itself. And it's just, it's, it's dawn. It has not quite crested over the mountains, but there's this growing light, this growing hope. It's gradually turning on and suddenly it will finally eclipse the mountains. It will, it will, it will come over them and boom. His light will shine upon his people and all the nations in creation will turn their heads and say, wow, that's awesome. And they will come. The nations, it says in verse 3, shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 4, so lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And remember, Isaiah is writing to a future Israel who will be scattered around the world because of their sin, and they will finally be gathered together. And he's on one hand telling Israel, look, God's going to bring you back and it'll be glorious. But on the other hand, all of us have been scattered in the darkest corners of the earth. All of us are spiritually homeless. All of us are estranged from our earth, uh, from our true father. And he will be gathering us. There will be a universal gathering and God will be glorified. Isn't that going to be great? Um, so that's verse four, verse five. Then you shall see and be radiant. You see? The glory will rub off on us. You shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. And young, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves through their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of Yahweh your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. And it keeps on going. Foreigners, in verse 10, shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut. Why? You don't have to shut gates when the world is at peace. Gates are to protect you from evil. There's no more evil. These gates will be open 
the people that people may bring. So to these open gates, the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Now, when John in Revelation sees the new Jerusalem, he describes it in these very words. And you can jot down Revelation 21 verses 25 to 26. Um, that's where he describes the new Jerusalem. Its gates will always be open and the wealth of the nations and the kings will be coming into it. This is the glory to come. For, verse 12, the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. They have a choice. And if they don't want to, it's not your kingdom anymore. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, for I will make the place of my feet glorious. So even God's footstool, just glorious. 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. So your persecutors will now bow down to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, that is weird imagery, granted. Nursing at the breast of nations and kings. But it means you're getting rich milk. It means good stuff. It's just an ancient illustration that they wouldn't have been as uncomfortable with. Then in verse 17, everything will be upgraded. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. And I will make... Your overseers, peace, and your taskmasters, righteousness. Violence shall be no more, or shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders, no more. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Now this is also in Revelation 21. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But Yahweh will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. For sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For Yahweh will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be fortified. The least one? Does that, is that you? Are you the least one? I sometimes feel like the least one. The least one shall become a clan. The smallest one, a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. In its time, I will hasten it. Isn't that just a... That's a, that's a mega vision, right? That's big, wide lens angle. Like, this is what God's going to do. And it is just illustration after illustration, this poem of how God's glory will arise and shine. And it will come like a beam of light and the world will be healed. But man, if we are not looking forward to this, and I don't just mean like, oh, I'm so excited. I mean like if we are not casting our vision on where we're going, then we will grow accustomed to the darkness around us and that will be 
too intimidating. I don't know. That's a little bright out there. I, I kind of like the little muddle light area. White's too white, black's too black, but gray is kind of okay. This vision is given to us so that we can begin to focus our eyes and accustom our eyes to the glory that will arise. Now, there's this great line um, in The Great Divorce, which I and a group of young adults have just finished reading. And toward the end, uh, there's, there's this same imagery of God's glory finally comes, and it arises like this golden sun. And in the book, the, all of the trees of the forest begin to erupt in praise when the sun finally rises. And it, they erupt in praise and say, It comes, it comes, oh sleeper awake, it comes, it comes, it comes. And this, just this whole universal celebration, finally, like, creation knows what it's waiting for. Creation knows what's coming. We're the ones who are, yeah, but everything's kind of dark around here. I'd rather get accustomed to what's around me. Creation knows it's not absurd that there will be a great liberation and a great healing and a great homecoming and a great glorious appearing. Creation accepts it, but you and I can be skeptical like, yeah, but maybe the kingdom of God is just kind of improving the lives of everyone around us. Maybe that's all it is. We find this vision somewhat a little absurd because, at least we do, if we have gotten too used to what is already around us. We are the ones who absurd are absurd. Why? Because I don't go around forgiving everybody who needs to be forgiven. I hold grudges. I hold debts. I don't go around loving people the way I should. I don't try to beautify the world or the people around me. I'm often just trying like, Brandon's number one. got to take care of my needs. Then if there's any time left, I'll take care of your needs. And when I live that way, it's impossible for me to attune and adjust my eyes to that glory which is to come. We are setting ourselves up for defeat, and I think we don't have enough hope. I think our hope is way too weak compared to what Scripture says is coming. We're like, oh, yeah, that'd be nice whenever Jesus comes back. But we kind of have this, like, nebulous idea, like, oh, I don't know. It's going to be kind of scary when he comes back, and it's going to judge the world. And we have all these negative connotations. Or we kind of tone it down because it's just too much. How can we conceive of a world like this? Friends, let us stop adjusting our eyes to the darkness and let us start looking forward to the light to come, setting our eyes upon those mountains as the sunrise is coming so that it does not affront our eyes, but we grow accustomed the closer it comes. And maybe it will be believable that this is coming if you and I were willing to live toward it so that the people around us who are in darkness can see a subtler version of this light before the great light comes. See? When you're in the middle of the, a dark wood and you're lost, you do not need the sun to suddenly show up in front of you because that wouldn't help you at all. You would be utterly blinded. But you do need a flashlight. And then once that works, you need a little bit more. And then you need like a floodlight. And then you need, I don't know, I don't know you, just, you just need the sun, the morning to come. We need steps in the light. It comes, it comes. Are we ready? Wise men, it's been said every Christmas, 
look forward to this light. They follow this light. And maybe you picked up on it that there are some very strong allusions to Matthew chapter 2 and the story of the birth of Jesus here in this chapter. I want to look at it again. Verse 1 of chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the wise men in scripture who were studying the stars noticed there was a different star that had arisen in the east. Huh, we should follow it. It's, It's signaling a king has been born. And they begin to move and orient themselves toward this light. Um, they likely rode on camels. At least that's how we traditionally portray it. And that's not a bad guess, seeing they came from the east. Probably rode camels across the desert. And you see right there in verse 6, a multitude of camels shall come or shall cover you. And look what it says in the middle of verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And if only it said myrrh. Of course, though, the illusion's too strong to just pass up. There's definitely something happening here. And Matthew, who clearly knows Isaiah the prophet, when he is chronicling the birth of Jesus, he says, Ah, this is just like Isaiah 60. Although they brought myrrh too, because maybe we didn't quite have the vision that this king was going to come and die too. But my goodness, the light has arisen. And these Foreigners, the nations, are coming to the light, like verse 3 said. They're coming with their wealth and their treasures because the light has begun to arise. It's not the full beam of noonday yet, but it is a star. And the light has begun to pierce into the darkness. And some have noticed. And they're following it and they're pursuing it. And we would also be wise if we did the same. They brought their gifts. So... What it seems that Matthew wants us to realize by pointing out the star and the gifts from these people from the east that came, he wants us to recognize that in Jesus Christ, this prophecy has begun, but it didn't come with its full radiant light beam because we couldn't handle it. We were those people who were wallowing in the darkness and we needed a single light beam to come in our midst to show us the way so that we could follow him and adjust our eyes to the glory that will rise. Jesus is that radiant light. He's the glory. He's a piece of the glory which is to come, helping us to adjust our eyes. So we see the New Testament picking up the same vision and saying, it's coming, people. Revelation twice cites from this chapter. Actually, three times. I didn't tell you one of them. But three times it cites from this chapter, it's coming. Are you ready? I hope so. Real quick, um, you guys might want to go to, we'll, we'll get back in here, but you might want to go to Matthew chapter 4. And I say this, because uh, keep your finger there once you find it, because we're going to jump to the Gospels a couple more times. It'll be other places, but if you're in Matthew, you're close enough to the rest. Matthew chapter 4. So after the wise men come, and the star goes up, and they give them the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, in Matthew 4, Jesus gets, uh, he has been baptized by John the Baptist, which quotes Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Then he goes into the wilderness and defeats the devil, being tested three times, but coming out victorious each time. Then he comes out of the wilderness, and in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, 
he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is Isaiah chapter 9, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, regions of Israel. The way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A light has dawned. It didn't burst in with its 100% energy, but it's cresting gradually so that humans can adjust their eyes to the glory that will rise. So then he starts preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there we see Matthew's vision, right? From his birth, the light is rising. And then Jesus is the light going out to those in the darkness. Great promise. Okay, but Isaiah recognizes, back in Isaiah 61 now, we're going to be in chapter 61, he recognizes that unless we adjust our eyes, this glory will be something we hide from. So, he gives us four ways to adjust our eyes. Helpful little fella he is. Four ways that we can start to get the, the pupils dilated to the right size. So that as the glory grows, so will we. So, chapter 61, verse 1. The first way to adjust your eyes, Isaiah says, preaching. I will preach as a prophet. He preaches. Jesus preached. The church gathers together to hear preaching. Preaching is one of the ways we adjust our eyes. Now, there's going to be a lot that's said in this part. But the main point is that the prophet's declaring He's, re, he's rephrasing chapter 60 in new words, but what he's saying about them is, I will declare this, I will preach it, I will proclaim it, so that we adjust our eyes to what's to come. So, look at it, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of Yahweh. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. 
Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. And their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them. That they are an offspring of Yahweh has blessed. You hear what he's doing? What's he preaching? He is preaching a series of reversals. The captive will be free. Those sitting in ashes will have a beautiful headdress. The ruins will be rebuilt. Everything has an opposite because when the glory arises, it will reverse everything. The kingdoms of man who have everything upside down will be toppled and the kingdom of God will replace it and set everything the way that God has always envisioned it to be. That's what the prophet's doing. He's re-preaching chapter 60 in different metaphors. But notice what he does not shy away from. I will preach this vision. We're not just going to leave it in this word here. We're not just going to just chat about it idly. I'm going to preach it and proclaim it in fresh ways. See this? The spirit of Yahweh is upon me to what? Bring good news. That's gospel in the New Testament. The good news. I will proclaim good news that the glory is coming. And notice, to proclaim in verse 1, to proclaim liberty. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There is an active preaching going on from the prophet that we must hear with our ears a fresh word of what is to come. That will adjust our eyes. Because you know what? You and I both know the proclivity in our hearts to, to accustom ourselves with the darkness. We're looking at it most of the week. I mean, how many hours do we hear radio, podcasts, television, lectures, whatever it is, and whatever we have to do, our bosses' boring meetings. I got Brooklyn there on you, sorry. Bosses' boring meetings. Um, how many hours do we spend listening to these things and yet, we're like, oh my goodness, Pastor Brandon's going 32 minutes. He's two minutes over. <laughs> if only. Like, really? But we need preaching. We need, we need this to keep focusing our eyes on the glory to come. And the prophet says, I do that. Now, another reason we need this is turn, please, to Luke chapter 4. This is so significant. That in Luke's gospel, the very first sermon Jesus preaches is the words you just read. Luke, Luke chapter 4. So notice, Jesus takes the same vision, the same glory, and he preaches it as well. So in Luke 4, he comes to his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue, and it's very normal to have a, someone, oh, hey, hometown boy's back. Let's have him read the scripture. And then they would make a comment, and that would be that. So in Luke 4, verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
You just read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. Now, we don't, I don't know for certain if he stopped there and there's debate within the scholars. Is this literally what he read or is Luke just giving us the gist? And all the readers who know Isaiah would say, oh yeah, we know that whole passage. Um, Luke's, by the way, Luke's gospel takes up the entirety of one entire scroll. So he really didn't have a lot of extra room to work with. It's very possible he's truncating just to give you the point. So Jesus may have read a lot more, but um, nonetheless, that's what we have there. But in verse 20, Jesus rolls up uh, the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You're supposed to say something, right? He's just like drawing out the suspense. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Our hometown hero is the one who's going to bring the glory that Isaiah promised. Ah! (laughs) And they said, now, so this is why they're partially amazed. It's because they're also like, "Uh, but don't we know this fella? Is he not Joseph's son? Did did not some of us take turns babysitting him and changing his diapers? You know, we know he he can be just as human as the rest of us. But Jesus answers them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Perform, yay! And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, now this is very key, pay careful attention to what he's saying. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Remember him way back in the day? Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. What is Jesus saying there? When Elijah was this big, powerful prophet, there were lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah only went to a widow in a Gentile country and served her. And like everyone's listening like, oh, yeah, that one part about Elijah we don't like. He went to the Gentiles. Jesus gives them a second example. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. So the number two big prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman now is not only a Gentile, So Elisha had lots of lepers in Israel, but he went to the Gentile leper and healed him. But this is not only a Gentile leper. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, which was terrorizing the people of Israel. He's not just going to the dirty, rotten Gentiles. He's going to one of the most wicked of the Gentiles and heals him. What's Jesus alluding to? What's he hinting at? Yeah, you guys are excited that the glory is arising and that I'm, I'm preaching this and I'm the spokesman. I'm saying, I'm here to bring it. You know this passage well from Isaiah, but here's what you've missed in Isaiah is that Isaiah said that this message was not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles, all people. 
And so he's telling them, look, even Elijah and Elisha got this message and they went to Gentiles. They went to non-Jews. I'm going to do the same. Okay. Sounds good to us, but look how they react. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What happened? Just a few verses ago, verse 22, it said they spoke well of him and marveled. And now... In six verses, they're filled with wrath. That's how quickly this turned. No, this is for us, not them. Now, in verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Sometimes we're so mystified by how do you get through a mob that we miss that line passing through their midst. Friends, what Isaiah and Jesus are imitating here for us is that if we were to adjust our eyes to the glory that will arise, we need to hear preaching to get our eyes adjusted. Because if we reject preaching or we ignore it or we sidestep it, then Jesus will pass through our midst and go away. We need preaching to remind us that the good news is not just for the church to sit on and say, we got the golden egg, protect it. It's to remember that we have people living in darkness who need a ray of hope, who need their eyes adjusted as well. We need preaching lest Jesus pass through our midst We don't want him to pass through our midst and go away. We want him here leading us, filling us, feeding us. Second, going back to Isaiah. Isaiah 61. So we need uh, preaching will help adjust our eyes. Second, praise. Praise will adjust our eyes to the glory that will rise. Look at 61 verse 10. The prophet is continuing to speak. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is what God's doing to us. He's making us beautiful. He's adorning us to be in a wedding ceremony. With him, there will be this unity and harmony. No more division, no more darkness. So what is he saying? I will greatly rejoice and my soul shall exult. It shall praise my God for this. Then verse 11. For as earth brings forth its sprouts and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Praise is so important for the people of God. It should be one of those stamps that mark and identify who we are. It should not be that we are out there angrily telling everyone where their sin is and how to fix your life and be right. Look, there's a place for holiness, right? But beyond that, what the people in the word of God are known for is they're praising the excellencies of God. And we must, if our eyes are on the future of what's to come, 
How can we not be filled with praise? I want to see a people on this mountain that have no other language but praise. Praise for those around us. Praise for the God that we follow. Praise for the future. But we so often, because we're listening to the preaching of Fox News or some other source, we're filled with doom and dread. And our country's never been worse. And look, even at our worst, we are still the best nation in history. Let's praise our creator. Let's praise God for what he's doing. We need more preaching and less yelling and ranting. (laughs) And I guess... um, But we should be marked by praise. And here's the thing that praise does. Praise exalts and acknowledges the beauty of the one praised. If we're doing that, then we're basically hanging little ornaments in every corner of creation and in our community with beauty. That beautiful God, let's have our words and our language and our praises. What's it called? Bedazzle the community? When you put all those little gems on your jeans? (laughs) Well, let's just make it beautiful. Let's, let's put the glitter around. Um, praise. First Peter, um, I'm going to go here just quickly. So I'm not going to wait for you. But, well, if I can't turn there fast enough, I guess you can catch up. First Peter 2 verse 9 says this. Paul, Peter tells us that you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Okay, so why are we chosen? Why are we his priesthood? Why are we his holy nation? He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, or the New King James just full on says, proclaim his praises, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That, if that doesn't sum it up, I don't know what does. We are being brought to the light so that we can proclaim his praises. That is the bottom line. We need to praise him, and through our praises, we will be adjusting our eyes to the glory that will rise. So we need preaching, we need praise. Third, we need prayer. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 62, continuing on. We need prayer. Prayer will set us for that glory. So Isaiah 62, verse 1, the prophet now launches into his own prayer. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. What is he saying? I'm not going to stop praying. I won't be quiet until God brings this glory here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I will not stop praying until that happens. That's what he's saying. Verse 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh will give. It goes on to say how they will be decorated. And then their new name in the middle of verse 4, You shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for Yahweh delights in you, and your land shall be married. And then in verse 6, Now he's calling out to us, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I set watchmen, All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. So the prophet's going to keep praying. We're going to keep praying. You who put Yahweh in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. (laughs) I love this. 
Isaiah is so bold here. He's saying, I'm not going to stop praying until God brings this glory. You guys be watchmen and do not be quiet until he fixes the world. Wow. And so suddenly I feel very pathetic. I'm like, I thought I prayed a lot, but now I realize I give up on praying these things sometimes. He's saying, don't stop praying until Yahweh accomplishes what he said he would. Be that incessant nagger. God, you promised, you promised, you promised, you promised. Still not here. Be that toddler. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You said I could have a cookie. Can I have it now? Can I have it now? I said after dinner. How are you at dinner? Now. Still making dinner. We haven't obviously eaten it yet. That is who we, that is the way we're supposed to be with prayer in regards to adjusting our eyes to the glory that will rise. God, you said, and I'm holding you to it until you do it. Now, um, Jesus in Luke chapter 18 gave us a parable about this. Um, you can, I would suggest you read that tonight when you go home. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. He talks about a woman who had been wronged and she keeps coming to a judge and the judge is like, you're a nobody. I do big cases because I like to be important. I'm kind of summarizing. I'm sort of interjecting a little bit there. But he keeps pushing her away. And finally, she won't stop. So the judge, Jesus says, the judge finally says, oh my goodness, if I don't grant her what she's asking for, she's going to wear me out by her continual nagging. My inbox is full of emails from her on every hour of the day. So what does the judge do? Fine, here, have your justice, get away. (laughs) Now, God isn't obviously treating us like someone to get away. But Jesus was saying, this is how we are supposed to pray. Persistently beg of our judge to bring his justice to earth until he does it. And yet we don't pray that way, do we? What do I pray for? Well, you have that to pray for at least. Um, I want to read to you something Charles Spurgeon said about prayer. He had something he called business prayers. And he says this. I believe in business prayers. I mean, prayers in which you take to God one of the many precious promises which he has given us in his word and expect it to be fulfilled as certainly as we look for money to be given us when we go to the bank to cash a check. That's what he calls a business prayer. I go to the bank, here, I, the check says $102.98. Don't miss the 98 cents. And I expect that exact change back, right? And if I don't get that, there's something wrong here, and I'm going to ask, and I'm going to talk to the manager of the bank until I get my money, right? That's what I will do. Spurgeon says, look, God has given us a promise. These are like banknotes. Why don't we take these to him and pray until he gives them to us? If he's promised it, he cannot deny us it. They're given to us so that we come to him rather than seeking our own methods of solving things. I grow accustomed to the dark because I try to do things in my own dark ways. But I am adjusting my eyes to his light when I am praying persistently as Isaiah and Jesus taught us to pray. And Spurgeon. I just don't want to throw him in the biblical canon. All right, finally. So we have preaching, we have praise, we have prayer. The fourth way to adjust our eyes is pilgrimage. So the last verses of our chapters. 62, verse 10. Pilgrimage. 62.10. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way of the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. 
lift up a signal over the peoples. A signal is like a banner. It's like a here. It's like a sign on a freeway. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Go through the gates and prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway cleared of stones. Do you guys get Isaiah's thread here yet? That the second half of the book begins with prepare a way in the wilderness, make straight the paths for the glory of God is coming. Jesus, when he comes, John the Baptist was the one preparing the way. So now the light is walking that path. And here Isaiah is inviting us back to that path. Part of adjusting our eyes to the glory that will rise is that we take this path through the wilderness of this world and we walk it with Jesus. And that as we walk it, we're clearing it of stones and rubble and we're making it even better so that the people we live with and work with and talk to and know can also join the path. In a way, we are creating, as we walk the path of Christ, we are to create on-ramps for people to get on board as we make our way. This is part of it. Our pilgrimage, our traveling the way, the very act of following Jesus. Not the way America says Christians act and our American way of doing, like our American Christian version. I mean, the biblical Christian version of Jesus asked, and we're going to see this more in Mark in detail, but Jesus asks us to serve, to be part of the flipping the world right side up. That's what he's asking us to do. And as we walk the way, we begin to see the signposts of what's to come. The question is, are we walking this path? Have we joined it? Or are we, you know, like in Nazareth, sitting on our hands and going... I like everything you said except the Gentile part. Or I, I pray, but I don't pray until God accomplishes his will. Or, oh, yes, I listen to preaching all day. Fox and Friends has great sermons. That's for you, Ron. <laughs> um, no. I mean, all those things are great, but the day is coming and the light's going to rise. Will you find it too bright and will you hide from it or will you find yourself welcoming the glory to come? That's why we were given these ways to adjust our eyes to the glory that will rise. Let's pray.